Hello fellow gamers and welcome back to another episode of Gamer's Guide to Ecology. I'm the host, Jesse D, an open world RPG gamer with a master's degree in ecology and evolution. On the show, I like to play popular open world RPGs from an ecological perspective. This month I'm playing No Man's Sky and on today's episode I'll be talking about its gameplay and xenobiodiversity on innumerable planets. At the end of the episode, I'll read out some gripes sent in by fans and fellow gamers, so stay tuned. playing No Man's Sky, published on PS4 and 5, Xbox One and SX, and Windows in 2016 by Hello Games. The dedicated fanbase and ongoing development of the game has garnered it quite a few awards in the last couple years. This game can best be described as not only an open world, but an open galaxy. The game consists of immeasurable number of visible star systems, each containing planets, anomalies, asteroid belts, space stations, and even space pirates. The game apparently contains over 18 quintillion planets to explore. That's 1.8 times 10 to the 19 planets. An unreal and completely unfathomable number to me. By its sheer size and scale, this game is the most open of open worlds. It reminds me of when I used to play Spore, actually. Besides exploration, this game has a strong survival and crafting aspect to it, since you need to constantly recharge your equipment or refill life support and spaceship fuel with mined resources. To make repairs or upgrades, you have to convert raw materials into usable components by refining them in a portable refinery, which itself takes fuel. Think of it like Minecraft, but in space. There's also a budding galactic economy. You can conduct trade with other species or by using the trade computers on space stations. The game can be played either single player or multiplayer cross platform, but since I'm terrified of getting blasted out of the sky like a noob, I've so far avoided the multiplayer version. Luckily, you don't need to play multiplayer to experience dogfights in space. All you have to do is be in the bad books of an alien species or wander through an area with pirates. The game does have a small plot that you can follow where you have to search for clues about an entity known as the Atlas. However, once I made it past the general tutorial at the beginning, I started colonizing other planets, cataloging their resources and their flora and fauna, and I really never looked back. You start the game as an unspecified humanoid alien individual stranded on a hostile alien planet. Sounds familiar, right? You must survive the elements by repairing your equipment using resources you collect on the planet, no, this is not Subnautica. You use your multi-tool to mine resources by shooting a laser at stuff. The resources from anything you mine, like crystals, plants, or animals, are automatically collected, so there's no running around having to pick up the pieces of the materials. You can also upgrade your laser to destroy stronger materials and use it to carve holes and tunnels into the ground. This game feels very similar, actually, to Space Engineers, but with a more cartoony and less dizzying sort of motion sickness feel to it. 
Anyway, after repairing your equipment, you can get to work on repairing a damaged spaceship that you find randomly. Unfortunately, your character suffers from amnesia, so it's never actually explicitly stated whose ship it is, and you just sort of steal it. In any case, you claim the newly repaired ship as your own and set out into the vast openness of space. On your adventures, you can learn about other alien species, their cultures and languages, which planet types are home to the resources you need, where to sell those resources to get the most cash or units for your efforts. Once you finish the tutorial, you're able to sell any additional ships that you acquire along the way and purchase upgrades for your exosuit, multi-tool, and spaceships. Spaceship upgrades will certainly help you dispatch pirates more quickly. Exosuit upgrades will help slow the power degradation you experience in various hostile planetary environments, and multi-tool upgrades will allow you to mine more quickly or access materials that require a stronger laser. You can also purchase an upgrade that turns your multi-tool into a gun that fires projectiles, as if a laser wasn't already cool enough. The gun makes quicker work of autonomous drones that you sometimes find on planets. In No Man's Sky, you can also farm specific plants. Uh, you need to research the hydroponics technology and acquire a special exosuit upgrade to harvest the materials. The farmed materials can then be sold at market for a profit. There are 11 types of planets you can encounter in No Man's Sky being toxic, irradiated, volcanic, lush, exotic, frozen, and more. Each planet comes with a unique array of flora and fauna, or plants and animals. On some planets, the majority of flora-like lifeforms are actually rock-looking fungi. You're able to catalog lifeforms you discover using your exosuit visor. That's your spacesuit. But because each planet is procedurally generated as it's discovered, every planet and its flora and fauna are unique. Your visor will tell you how many animal lifeforms you can scan when visiting a planet, which is usually around 6 or 10, but it doesn't tell you how many plants are scannable. This type of random number generation makes for an impossible task for completionists and collector gamers. I'm sorry, but there's no way you can finish scanning all the lifeforms, let alone visit every planet. So I'm telling you right now, don't even try. Apart from the number, visual appearance, and spawn areas of the animals on each planet, the game also randomly generates the animal's activity period and temperaments. Animal activity periods can be diurnal, which remember is during the day, or nocturnal, which is at night. Temperaments range from predatory to prey to passive, and each predetermined temperament comes with a set of standard behaviors, such as hunting, migrating, docile, defensive, and more. Predators are aggressive if you get close, but will not always stalk the player. There are some animals, however, that will follow you for some time and attack if they can get close enough. But for the most part, animals just ignore you and carry on with their roaming. What I like about the diversity of life in this game is that there's no limit to the type of planet that is required for life to exist. There's no Goldilocks planet that's a certain distance from the star of a certain mass with a certain atmosphere. Life exists on a lot of planets in its own way, and it's not really questioned how that's possible. Most lifeforms are carbon-based, meaning that by shooting your laser at flora and fauna you find on the planet, you can harvest carbon from them. Now, I know next to nothing about xenobiology or the potential for life to exist on other worlds, but I think the game could have done with a bit more variety in that case. I would have liked to have seen some lifeforms composed of other elements, like silicon at least, as is hypothesized by people that study other planets. 
Another curious feature of the game is that every planet I've visited has a set of staple plants, a small yellow one that stores sodium, and a small red one that stores oxygen. This is definitely curious, yes, most curious, given that you're supposed to be the first one ever visiting these planets. How could it be that these same plants are found on separate planets with different atmospheres across multiple solar systems? Beyond simply saying this is a bug in the physics and chemistry of the game so that players can have access to these resources regardless of the planet they're on, I think there's potential for some really cool storytelling here. Perhaps some like lost, long-forgotten alien civilization genetically modified these plants to be able to live in nearly every environment from frozen to boiling, arid to swampy, irradiated to toxic. Surely these great alien predecessors would have left behind some proof of their existence, right? Maybe that's who's been leaving behind all that buried technology. If you found an animal you like on a planet, you can try to befriend it. There are a few limitations to this process, though. The animal that you seek to make a companion must be terrestrial, which means lives on the ground, and walks on at least two limbs. To gain a companion, you have to offer an animal pellets to attract them or diffuse their aggression. Once they're placated, you can approach them and interact with them. From the pop-up menu, you can do certain things depending on the type of animal. One animal I encountered could be milked, and I immediately thought of that scene in The Last Jedi where Luke is drinking the green milk. Once you add a creature as a companion, you can pet them, feed them more pellets, and ride on them. Depending on the configuration of your companion, riding on them can look a bit silly. The first animal I befriended looked like a giant mite mixed with a crab. It had eight walking legs, and then these crab-like forelimbs and little hairs sticking off of its body at the back. Mites on Earth are microscopic creatures with eight legs, and they sometimes have body hairs. Crabs have eight walking legs and two modified legs in the front that are claws. I really liked riding my companion around just because it looked so ridiculous. To be honest, it wasn't any faster than walking, and it was certainly a lot slower than sprinting or using the jetpack. When mounted, your companion is easy to control, and they always have the ability to sprint using the same button you use to make your character sprint. But note, they will tire quickly as well, so you can't sprint for very long. Some companions wander away when you're not riding them, and they might go pretty far, but you can always summon them back to you. The weird mite crab that I had didn't roam too far, and it actually chased after me, not wanting to get left behind. I think this is my favorite feature of the game because of the variety of animals you can actually collect. Maybe that's just my inner Pokemon trainer talking, but like, catching Pokemon in space is really cool, right? In terms of ecological principles, No Man's Sky is a dull affair. Beyond incredible biodiversity, in fact innumerable, there's no indication that disturbance from colonization and mining affects any of the animals apart from interrupting their migrations. One time I dug out a very shallow and very wide hole to see if it would fill with water when it rained. Instead, it filled with a docile migrating animal, nearly 30 of them. As another example, even Minecraft has better representation of ecological succession than No Man's Sky when vines grow on buildings and sand reclaims temples in the desert. With that, we come to the new audience participation section. If you've ever noticed anything weird in a video game, or it irked you that something science, technology, engineering, or math related wasn't depicted correctly, send me a message on Twitter at J and let me know. I want to hear about it. 
I recently received a message about a gripe from a fellow biologist. He messaged me to let me know that he hates it when video games show animals in habitats where they wouldn't normally be found. Particularly birds. For instance, finding shorebirds so far inland or in big cities with no significant bodies of water nearby for nesting. This, I think, is common in video games for one main reason, that I don't think game designers ask anybody whether it's correct. It's probably just a way for them to fill a void or the white space in their canvas by extending the range of an animal a bit further than it should be, or by putting a bright or well-known species somewhere where it will get noticed, but which is also outside of its natural range. This should be a career option, actually, for scientists who don't want to work in industry or in academia. Media advisor. I know there's a bunch of gripes about how actors do lab techniques incorrectly on like crime shows and stuff. So basically something similar, but for zoologists or ecologists to consult on video games with major animal development. Another comment I got this week came from at Green Games Club on Twitter. They said many games have environmental aspects to them. They impact climate or the environment for better or for worse. A footprint index for video games, hardware, or gaming equipment would be great to see. I totally agree with this comment. If video games came with some kind of impact statement, like this game was designed and produced in a facility that uses 100% renewable energy, that would help people make informed decisions about their video game purchases. We already have these kinds of statements on food packaging, like dolphin-safe tuna symbols tell you there's no dolphin meat in your tuna can, rainforest alliance symbols tell you that a company is sustainable in the Amazon, and other recycling and composting symbols tell you that some packaging was made from 100% post-consumer products. Why shouldn't there be a similar symbol for electronics? Great idea, and thanks for your messages this week. No Man's Sky is a seemingly unending open-world game that has strong PvP potential in multiplayer and sometimes annoying obligate crafting and survival features. Completionists and collectionists like myself will likely hate it because it's impossible to finish, but gamers that love exploration, survival, and crafting should love it. I like it because of the nostalgia it gave me of playing Spore and the likeness of space engineers in Minecraft crafting. I also appreciated the ability to customize the character appearance as often as I wanted. Interacting with the environment consisted solely of shooting stuff with my laser tool, so that was kind of boring after a while. But because of the limitless diversity of life on an innumerable number of planets that I believe is a good representation of life's potential in the universe, Life, uh, finds a way. I give this game 3.5 blue giant stars out of 5. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe on whichever platform you're listening and download my episodes as they come out. You can also support the podcast on Patreon at Scientific Canada. Your support means that I can buy more open world and RPG games and keep making episodes about in-game ecology. I'd love to hear what you think of the show on Twitter. Tweet me at J. That's D-E-H-A-A-N-J. Good game, everyone. Podcast art is by Lara LeBlanc, and theme music is called Rain Song by Brett Eagleston. You can hear more of his music at bretteagleston.bandcamp.com.